Well, good morning, Grace. I had certainly hoped that by the time I stepped into the pulpit to, for Matt, uh, that there would be more people in this room. But here we are, you and your living room couch and me speaking to a very big, very empty room. I miss seeing you. Certainly today, I miss seeing you. But the elders and pastors are the shepherds of this flock, and uh, we understand that we have a responsibility to care and protect the flock and keep it safe. We're getting the systems in place. Actually, most of them are in place uh, for our return. But for now, we want you to stay at home and stay safe, and we continue to pray for your well-being uh, in that time when we can return together on campus. Well, we've been in a year-long walk through the Bible, and uh, we're actually in the last four weeks of our Old Testament sermon series. Today, we're going to look at the exile period and the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. So I thought it would be good if uh, we had a review so we could get a sense of, again, where we've been in the Old Testament and how the Old Testament concludes. So back in January, we taught you 40 uh, words and phrases and 40 hand signs as an overview of the Old Testament. So I want to review those. So I would like for you to set aside your coffee, stand up and join me and I'll do it slowly at first so you can catch on and, and have your memories jogged. Now, I was trained to do the children's uh, uh, ministry version of this, and it's all the same 40 words and hand signs, but one of the descriptions in the Bible for the children is that they don't know their right from their left, and it can actually be confusing. So here we go. I'm gonna raise my right hand. You stand up. Now, I'm waiting for you to get off the couch and stand up. Stand up, put up your right hand. You'll notice my right hand is opposite yours as you view it on the screen. So to help you out, I'm gonna put on this blue glove so that you know when my right hand goes up, that's your right hand, which is really on this side of you as opposed to this side of me. So because there's a cadence between the right and the left hands uh, that helps the hand signs actually flow together. So we're going to start where we start, all the way down at the bottom, open palms, because God's created all the world and all the natural things that we see from nothing. We're going to go creation, fall, flood, nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Okay? You're doing great so far. Here we go. Passover, the law, tabernacle, offerings, feast, counting, spying, wondering, dying, second law, Joshua, divide, conquer, 12 tribes, Judges, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, everyone did what was right in their own eyes except Ruth and Samuel. United Kingdom, 
Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart. Divided kingdom, mostly bad kings. Prophets speak. Israel, scattered. Judah, exiled. Judah, returns. Zerubbabel, temple. Esther, queen. Ezra, people. Nehemiah, wall. Wait. Christ. Good job, good job. I, let's try it again, okay, to get it back in your mind, and we'll use this kind of today to be able to understand where we are, okay? Start down here, ready? Creation, fall, flood, nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Passover, the law, the tabernacle, offerings, feast, counting, spying, wondering, dying, second law, Joshua, divide, conquer, 12 tribes, judges, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes except Ruth and Samuel. United Kingdom, Saul, no heart. David, whole heart. Solomon, half heart. Divided Kingdom, mostly bad kings. Prophets speak. Israel, scattered. Judah, exiled. Judah, returns. Zerubbabel, temple. Esther, queen. Ezra, people. Nehemiah, wall. Wait. Christ. Great. That's a good job. I'd encourage you to practice that this week. <clears throat> and if you would, video to yourself. Uh, or your family doing that, uh, and uh, put it, post it on our Facebook page for the church. Well, we're, we're in the period of time called the exile and return. It's that point in the Old Testament story where the Jews of Judah were put into exile in Babylon for 70 years, and God is going to bring them back to Jerusalem we're going to see how God sovereignly superintends this period of time. Many things come into place during this uh, period of time that are in place when Jesus comes on the scene later. During the exile, the reason they were exiled was it was God's discipline upon them. He was spanking them for their idolatry. They had walked away from him and they pursued after other gods. Their hearts had been led astray. Usually that happened because of intermarrying with other people around them. The badness of the mostly bad kings uh, in the divided kingdom period was really measured of how much they promoted idolatry to the people. <clears throat> 
In, in 2014, Diane and I uh, moved out of our house. We'd lived in that house for 23 years. It was a very interesting process because I had never lived in one place for that long. Uh, our children had grown up in that house and they had all graduated from college and were off. And uh, what we had to do was decide what we were gonna keep and what we were going to get rid of. In the attic, we found the crib that our four children uh, had slept in when they were infants. We had probably saved it for future grandchildren, but that model was probably recalled and was very dangerous, so it got tossed. Other things were packed carefully and moved to our new house. You see, when you move somewhere, you have to make a decision of what you're gonna keep and what you're gonna get rid of. And what new things do you need for this new home? That's similar to what's going on with the Jews during this period of exile and return. I wanna show you five significant things that God does during the exile and return period of time, and those things are gonna actually help you understand your New Testament period. Three of those things, three of those things are going to uh, uh, come into being during this exile period of time. The other two will happen because of the return. The fifth one of those is the most significant to us and actually I think will relate to how we might emerge from this current pandemic season. Well, let me talk about those things that, that came into being. The first one of those was the whole synagogue system of, of, of worship. Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians so with no temple, there was no sacrificial system of worship. The Judean Jews were carried off to Babylon and they had to figure out a new strategy to identify and cultivate their relationship with God. Uh, worship was moving from the temple in Jerusalem to congregational instruction through teachers in local communities. It was the synagogue system. Synagogue services included prayer, the reading of scripture, and usually a sermon explaining the scripture. Does that sound familiar? Worship shifted from a single place of worship at the temple to wherever a group of people gathered to worship and pray and learn. What had been inaccessible to the, a regular, an average person, a local place of regular worship and instruction from the law, was now accessible to each community of Jews. Synagogues were open to men and women and even Gentiles. The Jews take this system of synagogues and take it back to them from exile back to the promised land. Even though temple worship is gonna be restored, we see it in Jesus' day. Jesus goes to these synagogues and teaches uh, in, the, uh, in them. The apostles do as they go around the Roman Empire. So one of the things that God used this exile period of time was to develop this synagogue system. A second that kind of went along with it was a group of teachers. Now these weren't priests, they were a group of people that became students of the law of Moses and they desired to teach the, the, the Jews 
how to follow that law. It was these teachers that used the synagogue system to teach and instruct. We're going to see later that Ezra was one of these teachers of the law. Many times in Jesus' ministry, you'll hear of Jesus, uh, of these teachers of the law taking issue with him uh, over his words or his miracles. So you had the synagogue system, this group of teachers that had emerged, and the th a third was a group of people called the Samaritans. During that exile period of time, Israelites that didn't go off into exile to Babylon stayed there and intermarried with the people around them. They became known as Samaritans because the capital city, the province, was relocated to Samaria because Jerusalem was destroyed. When the Jews returned from exile, the Samaritan power in the region is challenged, is threatened. In each of the three returns, you're, you'll read of the antagonism between the Jews and the Samaritans. That continues throughout Jesus' lifetime even. Think of the, of the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan and Jesus would dare talk to her or his story about the good Samaritan. So you had the synagogue system, the teachers, the Samaritans. Uh, those, happened, those occurred during the exile period of time. The fourth thing is temple worship. It was restored during the return period of time. Through the leadership of Zerubbabel and Ezra and a priest named Jeshua, all the elements of temple worship are going to get, back, get put back in place. This guy named Jeshua is going to be affirmed by the, by the prophet Zacharias in, uh, that he is in the line of the priesthood of Aaron. They're going to establish all the things that were part of temple worship. Passover, law, temple now instead of tabernacle, offerings and feast. All those things are going to get put back into place during this return period of time. So those four things, the, the synagogues, the teachers, the Samaritans and temple worship, all came about because of this exile and return period of time. They're all going to come into play in Jesus' ministry later. And this is an expression of God's sovereignty. Remember how Matt has taught us what sovereignty is? It's having a plan along with the power to accomplish that. God's sovereignty. And in that sovereignty, he's going to orchestrate three groups of Jews to return to Jerusalem. See, God promises the, the Judean Jews that they're going to be, their exile will last 70 years. God's going to use the prophets like Jeremiah and, and Isaiah uh, to tell the Jews a hundred years or more before they go into exile, before there's a nation of Babylon or a King Cyrus or Xerxes, that their exile is going to last for 70 years. Here's a good example of it, because he wants them to know that he has a plan and he has the power to execute that plan. In Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 10, 
we read this. Some of you will be familiar with this passage. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for pro to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the nations and the places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to, to the place from which I carried you into exile. Did you catch that, that last phrase? From which I carried you into exile. The Babylons didn't carry Judah into exile, God did. He was exercising his sovereignty to execute his plan. God was gonna make a provision to preserve what was important to him. His sovereignty is him having a plan and the power to execute that. God's sovereignty is on plain display through, during this whole period of time. <clears throat> now in the Hebrew text, the two books of Jeremiah and, and Nehemiah are actually one book. And together they describe three groups that return to Jerusalem from exile. Each of the group is gonna accomplish a specific task, specific things. The, journey, the three journeys will take place over a hundred year period of time. The, that journey is about 900 miles and takes about 400, four months to, to accomplish. Together, these three journeys, these three returns, will reestablish Judah's connection to God, to the land, and to their heritage. The first return. In the first six chapters of Ezra, we read about this first expedition. It is led by a man named Zerubbabel and a priest named Jeshua. About 50,000 Jews, so it's a large caravan, <clears throat> will return to, to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel's goal is to rebuild the temple. To, to rebuild the altar and to reinstate the sacrificial system of worship. It's during this time when they're doing that in Jerusalem that back over here in Babylon, the story of Esther takes place. So when King Xerxes issues a decree to all the provinces of his empire that on a certain date that all the Jews can be killed, that decree would have been read over here in Jerusalem in the hearing of these 50,000 Jews that were rebuilding the temple. It would have probably been read by the providential leaders, the Samaritans. And God is going to use this time to show that he is sovereign. So the story of Esther 
protects this group of people, it also sets up the next two returns with Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the first return. The second return is with Ezra. It occurs about 80 years after that first group goes back. Ezra will lead about 2,000 Jews back. We get our introduction of, of Ezra, this man, uh, in chapter 7. In verse 10, it says this, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. <clears throat> Ezra's goal was to restore the people's obedience to God. He's going to use four times at, uh, uh, in this chapter uh, or uh, a a version of the phrase, in the hand of the Lord, his God was on him. Because he wants us to read centuries later that he understood it wasn't him doing this work, it was God doing it. It was the sovereign God accomplishing his plan by using his power. The Jews could have four, uh, have confidence in going forward because they could see that God was accomplishing his plan and they were just a part of it. If, he, uh, if, it, if this was his plan, then he certainly had the power to accomplish it. That's the second return. The third return happens about 10 to 20 years after Ezra. Uh, and is led by Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Matt will share more about that next week. These three returns uh, from the exile in Babylon occur over this hundred-year period of time, and they accomplish the things that God wants to accomplish. Zerubbabel, the temple, Esther, queen, Ezra, people, Nehemiah, the wall. The sovereign God was accomplishing his purposes to preserve what was important to him. So now we've seen thus far that God uses this period of the exile and the returns to set up synagogue worship along with teachers, the, the, the people group of the Samaritans, and now temple worship is restored. Uh, and, and God is going to continue to accomplish what is most important to him. And you would think that he's done that thus far if what was most important to him was restoring the temple and temple worship. If having a set of teachers and synagogues to instruct people, observing the Passover or the priesthood or offerings and feasts, but we're going to see now surface in this whole situation in Jerusalem, a problem comes to, to light. And it's through that problem we're going to see what was most important to God in these returns and what he wanted to see happen as a result of this period in their history. In Ezra chapter 9, it's brought to Ezra's attention that the people that returned with Zerubbabel and him had begun to intermarry with the people around them. Ezra has this major reaction to that. He tears his tunic and his cloak. 
He pulls his hair out of his head. He pulls hair out of his beard. All acts of self-abasement. He feels the weight of the guilt and shame of this is what's going on. What's the big deal? It's idolatry. Their forefathers had gotten into idolatry through intermarriage. That is what turned their hearts away from God in the first place. That's why they were sent into exile. See, idolatry was threatening to undo everything that Ezra has tried to restore. And he gets angry and upset. See, idolatry is a condition of the heart. What God wants more than temple worship or sacrifices or offerings and feasts is he wants a people whose heart is wholly devoted to him. Idolatry is a condition that shows a person's heart isn't right with God. As I've gotten older, my regular doctor started sending me to a cardiologist for an annual checkup. Uh, the cardiologist checks the state of my heart, the condition of my heart by listening to it, by doing tests, a CT scan or an echocardiogram. See, he wants to learn some things about the condition of my heart. Is there plaque buildup in the arteries that are going to lead to a heart attack someday? Are the valves functioning the way that they're supposed to? Has there been any change in the functioning of my heart compared to my last checkup? No, it's very encouraging to me to get the follow-up feedback from him that my heart is in good condition. I get a good report. I don't necessarily like when he adds the statement at the end of that report by saying, for your age. Well, in this situation, all the work that had been done to, to set up systems to restore people to honor their God again so that they would have learned something from the exile period begin to unravel. Ezra is shocked and dismayed when he discovers a heart condition in the people. But God's not surprised by that condition. In his sovereignty, he's been dealing with man's heart condition since the Garden of Eden. He's made provision for that as part of his plan. Ultimately, uh, Jesus will fix the root cause of our heart condition and restore us into right relationship. But even at this point in God's plan, he has a provision for this problem in the heart of men. In chapter 9, we, Ezra records his prayer of confession uh, before, the, uh, before God. In that prayer of confession, he's going to reference four times a group of faithful followers. He's going to call them the remnant. Let's look at, at part of his uh, deal, the last part of his prayer of confession in Ezra chapter 9. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve. 
and you have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your command again and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough uh, with us to destroy us and leave us no remnant or survivor? Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. The remnant. See, the fifth significant thing that comes out of this exile return period is the remnant. A remnant is a group of people that show they are faithful to God even through a disaster. A group of people who hold to being faithful to God even in the midst of a disaster or a catastrophe. See, failure of the larger body doesn't impair God's purposes. Ezra's appeal to God is not, look at all the good works that we've done for you, Look at this temple, the priest, the law, the offerings and feast. Ezra's appeal to God is to preserve a remnant of faithful men and women who will show their love to God by obedience to his word. The sovereign God is going to accomplish his purposes. He's going to preserve what is most important to him. What has been and always will be most important to him is to preserve a remnant, a group of people who will remain faithful followers even uh, if others turn away from God. God is always continuing to do this. Preserve a group of people who choose to come under his lordship, a group of followers that don't bow their knees to other gods, a people that don't get shipwrecked along the way. As we learned our walk through the Bible, most every name that we learned in those 40 phrases were people that God had used through the history of Israel to preserve a remnant of faithful followers of his, even though the rest of the people fell away. In Romans chapter 11, Paul picks up on the same concept. In verse 5, he says this, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul understood what God's work was, that God was going to preserve a remnant. And he has to do that because he made promises. He made promises to Abraham and he's made promises to David. He has to preserve the line of Judah because the Christ will come from the line of Judah. God is preserving what's most important to him. A group of people who are faithful followers even in the midst of disaster, and he does it to fulfill his promises. God promises humanity in the garden that there will be a Savior. Preserving a remnant throughout history 
is what God does to fulfill his promises. No matter how dark the world gets, there will emerge from that chaos a remnant. Well, what's our application for today? I have seen lots of people start off the Christian journey really very, very well. They start with great zeal for the Lord. There's a season of passion and devotion. And then something comes along and begins to distract them. It can be fatigue because the journey is just long. It's harder than you think to walk with God for the rest of your life. It's easy to get drawn away by other relationships, a spouse or children or friends that lead you away from Christ rather than you leading them to Christ. It's the pull of a career or personal accomplishments. It's the rut of daily life. People get stuck at the wall and they stay stuck there. There's casualties along the way in this journey of life. But God is always using his sovereignty, his plan, with his power to preserve a remnant of faithful followers. There's lots of characteristics of this uh, group called the remnant. But let me point out three particular characteristics that I think would be helpful for us. The remnant, the people who choose to show themselves faithful to God, choose to love. They love God more than this life. They choose to obedience. They want to show their love for God through their obedience. They want to understand his word so that they can follow it. And they choose to serve. See, they see themselves playing a part of God's story to build his kingdom. They choose to step into that story and serve God to help build his kingdom. Now, we use a different term around here at Grace for this group called the remnant. It's called a disciple. It's a person who wants to become like Christ in all of life. See, because Jesus modeled these three particular characteristics, he loved the Father more than this life. He showed his love for the Father through his obedience. And he was willing to serve the Father's purposes in order to build the kingdom, even if that meant going to the cross and dying. See, during this exile period, the Jews had to make some major adjustments. They were cut off from their normal system of worship at the temple. They created a whole new system in order to encourage their personal walks with God. They made adjustments on how to live in a hostile environment and how to go beyond just living but to thrive personally in that environment. Does this all sound familiar? Many people died in exile because they failed to make those adjustments. Many Jews chose not to come back. Others thrived and they prepared themselves for the return. What if the turmoil of our world and our country right now 
is our exile. It's time for us to quit asking God to align with our plans and to ask his help to align us with his plans. It's time for us to recognize his sovereignty. He is in control. He takes us to this place and he has the power to get us through it. Our normal lives are interrupted, but what if a sovereign God was engineering all of this so that we would address what's most important to him, our heart, our heart condition, the state of our heart. Grace, at some point, we're going to regather in, onto this campus, and we will worship again, and we will fellowship again, and we will minister face to face. We will gather in this room again, and we will sing unmasked to the glory of our God. We'll rejoice over the lives that were spared from this illness. We will mourn over those that, that are lost. We will continue to hear from this pulpit the word of God preached. But what is most important are more important than you bringing your body back on this campus is for you to bring back a heart fully devoted to God. You don't have to be here on Sunday morning to do that. You can cultivate that through private worship in your home as a family. You can read God's word daily we're fixing to go into the New Testament. Start there. You can praise more and you can pray more and whine less. You can devote yourself to cultivate a healthy heart. So let's prepare ourselves for that day of, of return by surrendering our hearts to him. Make the adjustments that you need to in order to love him, to choose to love him more than life itself. In order to choose to learn his word so that you can obey it. In order to choose to play a part of serving in his kingdom. Choose to cultivate your heart for the living God. When we come back, there's gonna be a lot of work to get back to where we were before we were separated months ago. But the most important work that, that will, needs to happen can happen now. It's in our individual hearts to point toward the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we stand before you and kneel before you and sit before you as our living God. You are sovereign and you are in control. It will be written that you led us to this period of time of a worldwide pandemic and social turmoil. And in your sovereignty and your power, you will lead us through it and you will preserve in us a heart of a people whose hearts are fully devoted to you. 
Lord, let that be the people of grace. Father, we surrender ourselves to you and, and the uncertainty of our time, but there's no uncertainty with you, and so we entrust ourselves to you. Help us, guide us, lead us, direct us. Father, we particularly today surrender to, us, to you, our youth who are going to camp. We pray that you would protect and preserve them and that you would stir at their young age a heart that's fully devoted to you one that loves you, who, that wants to learn so they choose to obey, and who wants to serve in building your kingdom for future generations. Father, our hope can be only placed in one place, that is in a sovereign God who's going to preserve what's most important to you. We pray this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus. Amen. It's good to be with you today, Grace, even though it's at a distance. I'm praying for you, for our well-being, and for our return.